Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. So kids, you're more than welcome to head on out. We have Kids Refuge. If there's anyone still in the service, let's head into Kids Refuge. That's up to kindergarten. And then first and second grade out to um, Elevate. Hopefully that gives you a little bit more room. You can spread out a little bit more. Well, maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of us here this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Joel. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Refuge. And this summer, what we've been doing is we've been going through and looking at various commands or practices or disciplines that we find in the New New Testament that talk about what are we supposed to be doing as the people of God together. So various communal practices that God has instituted for his people. So far this summer, we've looked at a few things. We've looked at what does it mean to love one another, greet one another, encourage one another, bear with one another, live in harmony with one another. This morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to teach and admonish one another. And then next week, we're going to finish up our series. We're going to be looking at what does it mean to serve one another. So hopefully, as we've been walking through these various practices, you've been seeing a fuller picture of what life as the people of God is supposed to look like. That's our hope as we're going through these things. So once again, this morning, we're looking at what does it mean to teach and admonish one another. Normally, someone would be up here reading the passage before I get up. Uh, I forgot to do that this morning, so you're going to bear with me. I'll read it later on once we get to it uh, in the sermon. But for now, uh, stick with me. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump on in. Father God, I thank you so much that you have loved and cared for us, a wayward people, That you have seen us in our sin and our shame and our guilt. And yet you have said to us that we are loved and accepted because Christ has died and risen again in our place. I pray that this morning as we look at your word, as we see what it means to be your people, that you'll work spirit in our minds and our hearts, drawing our affections toward you so that we will love you more. And I pray that all this ends with us imaging Jesus, looking like Jesus more. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So to start off this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to think back on your life. I want you to think about some specific moments in your life. So try and think, if you're a Christian, of when you came to know Jesus, or maybe when you were baptized, it may be a specific like, point in time, something specific happened that made you realize your sin and your need for Jesus, or it may have been over a period of time, but I want you to sit for a moment. I kind of want you to think through those events or that time period in your life. So take a moment, think about that. If you're like me, 
Once again, your story may be like mine. It may be a little different. For me, I grew up going to church. Uh, I don't know of a time when I wasn't in a church on a Sunday morning. Hearing, I was hearing about God from an early age. Uh, there was, there's, wasn't really a specific time when I think about my story that, you know, I prayed a specific prayer or like I saw the greatness of my sin and came to know Jesus. It, for me, it was kind of this steady series of teaching and events, a steady life and progression toward Jesus. Um, but there, I will say that there were a few key moments in my life that stood out. I remember coming home from youth group one night uh, when I was in middle school, and my youth group leader shared the gospel in very clear terms that evening. I remember she outlined how we failed to live as we were called to live or created to live by God, and how that failure to live as he created us to live separates us from him, and that the only way to be restored back into relationship was to trust in what God had done in Jesus. I remember going home and thinking about that and contemplating that and saying, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I believe that God is both righteous and just, but also merciful and gracious because of Jesus. I remember that. It, like I said, it's one of those memories that sticks with me. Your story might be a little bit like mine, or it might be different. I've had the privilege to sit in a whole bunch of membership interviews for people here at Refuge. I've had the opportunity to hear a lot of your stories. And some of those stories are like mine, where you grew up going to church, and God has slowly shepherded your life in faith toward him. But I also know that there's other stories here that are, that are different than my own story, where Maybe you were far off. Maybe you were living a life that God would not have been pleased with. And in, in God's love and his graciousness, he placed someone in your life to share the good news with you. And through that sharing, God gripped your heart and you came to trust him. The stories in this room of what God has done in our lives are vast and varied. They're across the board and that is a beautiful thing. But I also want to point out that no matter what your story looks like, in coming to faith in Jesus and his work on your behalf, there is a common thread through all of our stories. It's that God has made himself known, his power, his presence, his character. He's made all that known through his people. Whether like me, you grew up going to church and you heard from an early age the witness of believers around you as to who God is and what he's been doing, or whether God placed someone specific in your life to help you understand his greatness and his goodness, this is all done by God through his people. God uses his people to make himself known in this world to his people. That's a good thing. Paul says that a specific way uh, in Romans chapter 10, when he's talking to the church in Rome, he's trying to get them to understand what their calling is to one another. So he says this, so this is Romans chapter 10, verses 13, through, thir 13 and 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Great questions, Paul. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who knows who God is and what God has done for them in Jesus will be saved. But he also goes on to point out, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. God is using his people. They won't call on the name of the Lord unless they know him, unless they know Jesus, unless they know God, unless they know his saving work. And they only know this because people have told them, witnessed to them, told like shared with them what the gospel is, who this God is, what his character is like. God uses his people to share his character in the world. But the beautiful thing is, this isn't just the entrance into the Christian life. This is what all of our lives in Christ look like. Over and over and over again, God is using his people to teach and build up and admonish and prepare us for what a life honoring to him looks like. This isn't just the entrance into the Christian life, it's all of life. God is using his people to teach and admonish us so that we understand his character and we understand his goodness. So that's what we're zeroing in on this morning as we're talking about this communal practice. We're talking about teaching and admonishing one another because this is God's ordinary means to build up the life of a believer. So we're going to jump into our passage now. We're going to look at what does Paul say about this when he's talking to the church in Colossae. So Paul has, up until this point where we're going to read, Paul has been going through and talking to the church in Colossae about who is God? What has he done? He spends much of the first chapter outlining Jesus, this picture of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, showing us this magnificent picture of who Jesus is and his character and his work and his purposes. He also goes through in the first chapter and he tells the church in Colossae and us that we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but that God through Jesus has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He goes through and he's outlining, this is the picture of who God is, his character, his purposes in this world, and this is who you are. And so when we get to this point in our passage, Paul is exhorting, he's telling the church in Colossae, this is now what you are called to in light of who you are. So let's jump in. We're going to read this. So this is Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, and I want you to listen for how Paul talks about our calling to image Jesus and our calling to pursue God and display his character. So listen for that as I read this. So this is Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. So let's hone in on two of, two of the verses here that Paul wrote. First is verse 10. He says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then down in verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul is trying to impress on the church of Colossae and on us that we are called to know God, know his ways, know his character, know him in relationship. This is our calling. And as we know him, we're renewed in our knowledge about him. Now this is key. This is key to this passage, understanding what Paul is trying to push us toward. We're being renewed in our knowledge. I'm going to say that over and over again. You may, it may stick with you today. I don't know. I hope. When we're renewed in our knowledge about God, then we necessarily are going to image him. When we renew our knowledge about God, we are going to image him. We're going to display him in the world. It means we're going to make his ways our ways, his character, our character. This is our calling in the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But I want us to, to kind of dive into that just a little bit more. Why is this the case? Why is renewal of our knowledge of God so important in displaying him in this world, in being like him? So to do that, let's ask ourselves another question. If you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not, by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm happy you're here this morning. just want you to know. But if you're a follower of Jesus, what terms come to mind to describe God? If someone asked you to describe God to them, what would you say about him? Is he loving and kind? Or is he mean and spiteful? Is he just yet merciful? Or is he arbitrary and aloof? Is he holy and good? Is he a killjoy? How we view God affects all of our lives because we are going to worship and behold and be transformed into the image of what, we, of what we're looking at. Our view of God is based on our knowledge of him, what he's done in time and history, how he's interacted in the world, how he's interacted with creation. And when we look at these things and we see our God, when we behold him, 
we are going to become like him. We become what we worship. It's written over and over and over again, not only in the Bible, but it's true when we look around the world. If we worship money, that's what we're going to pursue. We're going to pursue it to all ends, and we're always just going to need a little bit more. Something we talk about every single week. If we, prefer, if we pursue or we worship fame or status, we're going to pursue it with all of our might. It's going to be that thing that holds, holds out hope that it will save us. Same with our view of God. As we're worshiping him, beholding him, we are going to be transformed into his image. But this is key. Is our view of him, our understanding of him, our knowledge of him right? Or is it off base? So the question still stands. How would you describe God? How do you see him? What are his characteristics, his attributes, his character? Let's walk through the biblical story a little bit and see some of these elements of God's character on display. When we look in Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, very beginning of all things, beginning of creation, God forms all things by his wisdom, he brings about order out of chaos. He makes things with plan and purpose. And in his wisdom, he sets everything to a specific purpose. Let's, let's take another example. So, sorry, let me sit, step back. So it means he's wise. He's knowledgeable. He's good. He has plans and purposes. He's not arbitrary. So think about the Israelites in Egypt. They've been oppressed for almost 400 years. They're groaning under the oppression of the Egyptians. They're crying out for deliverance. God wasn't aloof. He heard their cries. He had compassion. He saw them and he sent deliverance for them, brought them out of Egypt. He listened, he had compassion. This is his character. This is the God that we see in his word. Or think about the people of Israel later on in the story when they have kings ruling over them and these kings sought after other gods and the people of Israel sought after other gods, sinning against God, rebelling against him. And in doing so, God's righteousness and his justice went out. He called the people to repentance, and when they did not turn to him, we saw anger and wrath and judgment. This is the character of God that we see in his word, calling people to repentance, but also being just and holy. Our knowledge of God is based off of who we see him to be, his character. This is why Paul calls us as a new people in the gospel to renew our knowledge of God and his ways so that we're worshiping the true God, not some facsimile, not some idea that we may have, but the God who, is ex who has expressed himself in time and history and place and people. 
He wants us to know him as he is. And so that's why, once again, Paul says, renew your knowledge of your creator. And we're, conform, we're being conformed into his image. What we behold, we will be like. What we worship, we will be like. To put it another way, we will be renewed and transformed into what we worship. So I want to I want to pull on another theologian, um, another guy who wrote a whole bunch of books a while ago. His name is A. W. Tozer. He's his works are really good, and I feel like they're really helpful in understanding kind of what we're talking about this morning, where we we become what we behold. And what we think about God is important. So I'm going to read this quote from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous or um, the, the best indicator of what will happen, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. We always move in the direction of who we think God is, both individually and corporately or collectively. Paul says that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. What we believe about God, our knowledge of him, will be what we move toward. We emulate, we image the God that we know. So I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know everything about God. I'm going to, I'm going to, guess that you don't know everything about God either. Even the phrase that Paul uses here, being renewed in knowledge, necessarily means that we don't know everything. God has worked in this world. He's worked through history and in time, through people. We are works in progress in understanding who he is and what he has done in this world. And that's good news. That means that we if we are incorrect in what we think about God, can continue to grow and understand and change. That means if we have faulty knowledge of him, we can be corrected and turn towards Christ. That's good news for us. So how does God do that? How does God correct our knowledge of him? How does he help us grow in understanding him? Well, if you remember all the way back to the very beginning, when we were thinking through how we came to know Christ, it's the exact same method that God uses. He uses 
his people to help us understand him. He does this in a variety of means. He, he does this by, once again, teaching, admonishment. Those two words, they kind of link together. Teaching is more about you don't understand or you don't know, and therefore someone fills you in. Admonishment is this idea that you have an idea, but it's a wrong idea, and you're slightly corrected back onto the right course. God is using his people to subtly and helpfully move us toward a correct knowledge of him. But Paul also points to another aspect, that the word of Christ needs to be dwelling richly in us for that to occur. The knowledge of God, his actions, Jesus' teachings, all that we find in the Bible need to be taking root in our hearts and in our minds. His word needs to be dwelling richly in us. That means if we're to help one another know God rightly, we also need to be learning and growing in who God is and what he's done in time and history and action. We need to know what is the Bible saying about God. And because, once again, we're incomplete works, our knowledge is incomplete, we can take what we see, what we understand, what we know, how the Holy Spirit is inspiring us, and we can go and we can help other people understand and know those things too as we see them, as we understand this picture of who God is. The calling of the Christian life is to know God in deep personal relationship through the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and display, to display God's character to the world, to be conformed to his image. That means being renewed in our knowledge of God, being taught by our brothers and sisters about God's character, our lives being on display for one another to see God's character. That means that you and I are being called to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to one another because this is the character of our God that we see revealed in Scripture. That means that we desire justice and righteousness. We weep and mourn and are angry over sin, especially in our own lives because this is the character of God that we see coming out in history and time. That means that we welcome the widow, the outcast, the immigrant, the orphan, the least in society, the person the new people in our midst, because this is what God has done for us in Christ. This is the character that we've seen demonstrated over and over again through God's word, which is dwelling richly in us, through the renewal of our minds, seeing God's character. And this happens as we are taught and admonished by one another, pointed to the way of Jesus, because his word is dwelling in us. So the last thing I want us to consider is this aspect of teaching and admonishing one another, there are some things that are required for that to, to occur. Four big things that came to mind as I, was, as I was meditating on this. The first thing, if we want to teach and admonish one another so that we will be renewed in our minds, if we want to teach and admonish one another, we individually need to pursue a better knowledge of God and his word. We need to be reading, understanding, knowing the Bible. That's why I want to point out, 
we have a summer reading plan going on here at Refuge. Reading through the New Testament together, knowing God's word. If you're not doing that, I encourage you, jump in, start today. It's good. (laughs) But that's part of what it means for us to take this command seriously is to be reading and understanding God's word. The second thing, to teach and admonish one another, we need to have an openness individually, personally, to be taught or admonished by other people. We have to be humble enough to realize that we don't know everything. We need others to speak into our lives to help us know God better. We have to live a life where we invite other people in the body of Christ to come and to teach and to admonish us. We need them to come and correct us because we all have faulty views of God. We all veer off course. And God's graciousness to us is that the people he has placed in our life, the body of Christ around us, can help us stay the course. But we need to give other people permission to do that. In a radically individualistic culture where we don't like to be told that we're wrong, we need to invite people to come in and tell us, you're off course, you're wrong. Look to Jesus. The third thing that we need to do to teach and admonish one another is we need to truly love and care for one another. I found that many times in my own life, I have, out of fear, fear of wounding a relationship or maybe having someone think poorly of me, out of fear, I've decided not to speak up not to help correct a brother or sister in Christ in their faulty view of God. But if I truly loved them, then I would want to see them know God as he is. If I truly loved them, then I would say the greatest thing in your life is going to be having a right picture and a view of God so that you rightly worship and image him. That means that I have to step out of my fear and into love toward other people. I can't just have a nonchalance towards those that are around me. And the last thing, the fourth thing, is that we have to be with one another. That means that, you know, we need to, we need to be here on Sunday mornings so we can interact and we can learn and we can grow together. That means that we need to be in gospel communities, our small groups together, so we can build relationships and be known and know others, so we can teach and admonish one another. That means we need to be going to men's and women's events so we're building better relationships. That means that we need to jump into Bible studies or refuge university classes so we can understand more about who God is in relationship with one another and allow the opportunity to teach and admonish. It means we go and we play bingo at Frontier, building relationships. That means we go to youth group. This isn't just for adults. This is for all people who call Christ king. So to take this practice seriously, to teach and admonish one another so that we're renewed in our knowledge after the image of Jesus, we must be learning and growing together.
We must invite each other in to teach and admonish us. We must push past fear into love for one another, and we must be present so that we can grow and others can grow in our knowledge of God. That's our goal. And this is all on the bedrock truth that we are being called into deep, abiding relationship with God through Christ. We're renewed in our knowledge so that we are conformed to his image, so we display God's character in this world. That's what this is about. So my encouragement to you this week is teach and admonish one another. Look for those opportunities. Be in community with one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness that you have called us, set us apart as your people, and that you have not just left us there, but instead you have decided to use your people to continue to build within us a knowledge of who you are and what you've done in this world. I pray that this week, as we meditate on your word and your calling and your commands, that you will work in our hearts and our minds, that you will give us a deep affection for our brothers and sisters, and that you will help us step out, not only to teach and admonish someone else, but also to listen and to receive teaching and admonishment so that we can all be conformed to the image of Christ as your people. I pray this because Jesus has saved and redeemed us. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.